Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. While each new mass shooting in the U.S. reignites debate over the country's treatment of gun rights as virtually sacrosanct, Americans own more guns than anybody else on Earth, even adjusted for population. But Americans disagree along partisan political lines on whether that's a major issue for the country. Gun owners, many of whom live in rural areas, view gun control as an attack on their way of life. The U.S. is actually one of only three countries to include gun ownership rights in its constitution. At its core, gun owners point to the Second Amendment. The right of the people to keep and bear arms enshrined in the Second Amendment was established in the 18th century. Joining us now to discuss how the Second Amendment has polarized America when it comes to gun control. We're joined now by Jonathan Ganap. Mr. Ganap is a professor of American history and political policy at Stanford University. Professor Ganap, thanks for joining us. Professor Ganap, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Uh, let's uh, touch on uh, the Second Amendment here. For our listeners here in Canada, uh, can you give us a, a background on what the amendment is, first and foremost, before we begin the broader conversation? What is the Second Amendment? The Second Amendment, uh, which was added to the Constitution shortly after it was written, uh, it was written in 1789 and ratified in 1791, uh, says a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Uh, so it covers the use of firearms and weapons um, by members of the public, exactly in which ways has long been open to debate. But it's a general constitutional protection for certain kinds of rights that pertain to the ownership and use of firearms. So the founding fathers at that time felt there was a need in the nation for that amendment and for militias. So the reason we have the first 10 amendments to the Constitution, which are now referred to in the United States as the Federal Bill of Rights, uh, was because of criticisms that the original Constitution received during the period when it was put to the public um, for consideration to be ratified or not. And those who were critical of the Constitution or skeptical about whether or not it would sufficiently protect liberty said that a series of protections needed to be added to it that made clear that certain rights would not be violated. One of those became the Second Amendment, but unlike the debate that has raged for some time in the United States in our modern society, the primary issue in the 18th century pertained to state control over militias. Prior to the adoption of the Constitution, militias were exclusively controlled by the individual states, and the federal constitution um, seemingly gave certain kinds of powers to the new national government that it would allow it to regulate these militias in certain ways. So those who were worried about what the constitution might mean for traditional forms of liberty were really eager to ensure protections um, for the local militias that had long been under state control. Now, there was a ruling in 2008, the U.S. Supreme Court overturned the notion that the Second Amendment uh, only pertains to the context uh, of uh, of a militia. Um, what was the uh, the the response to that, uh, and uh, where do, where do we stand today in regards to that ruling? It's certainly the most important Supreme Court ruling ever on the Second Amendment, and it's it's extremely important, um, especially these days. Two thousand eight, District of Columbia v. Heller, as you said. Uh, 
overruled the long-standing claim of many that the Second Amendment only protected the use of arms for the use in a militia and specified that the use of certain kinds of weapons in certain capacity were constitutionally protected, even if they were independent of militia use. But the ruling in Heller itself was actually pretty narrow. It was targeting a District of Columbia law that prohibited handguns or required other kinds of weapons like rifles to have a trigger lock put on them when they were in the home. So it basically said that people have a right to have handguns for use for common, for self-defense in the home. That entirely left open the question of whether or not people were permitted to own and possess other kinds of firearms, not just handguns, but other forms of rifles, other kinds of assault weapons, and what kinds of uses were or were not protected outside the home. So those are the issues that Heller did not resolve, even if it did come down clearly on the side that the Second Amendment protected an individual right to bear arms independent of use in a militia. Nonetheless, it did not clarify exactly was or what or what exactly what could be prohibited um, in other domains of life, and 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 that will determine in the coming years um, really what the scope of the right is as the Supreme Court hears more cases. Mm-hmm. Um, when did the the conversation around the Second Amendment, or how I guess not when, but how did the Second Amendment conversation shift from being part of um, legislation and, as you said, uh, the the debate in the Supreme Court, to a symbol of freedom uh, today? That is a great and complicated question. There are different answers to it. How how did this amendment that didn't quite have that, the meaning that is is attached to it now um, by so many, it didn't have that meaning in exactly the same form in the 18th or for much of the 19th century? There's different different periods of time that you can identify as the key transition, but certainly in the last 50 or 60 years or so, as um, the National Rifle Association, those who are members of it, those who subscribe to the particularly aggressive form of rights bearing and rights ownership that it promotes, began to really sort of coalesce into a meaningful populist popular movement um, that really galvanized a lot of people and around this idea that it was not just an important part of freedom, but really the cornerstone of American liberty. And that marked a pretty dramatic change with attitudes towards firearms and their use prior to that. So in many ways, you can trace it to the last 50 or 60 years or so that there's really been a shift in popular attitudes generally towards the symbolic value and meaning of guns and the need to own them and the idea that it's not just an important part of American liberty, but to many is the cornerstone. Uh, So the debate that exists today uh, can't really be understood independent of that broader cultural shift, um, which is is pretty far-reaching, and we would not have found something similar in earlier periods in American history. So is that symbolism deeply entwined now uh, with a certain portion of America, and, and do you think that is permanent? I'm not sure it's permanent. 
as a historian, you're always uh, skeptical of the idea that nothing can change because so much has in the past and often in unforeseen ways, but it is deeply rooted. It's hard to suggest that, that just about anything is more deeply rooted, um, particularly in parts of the United States that are more politically conservative. It is so bound up with certain cultural notions of masculinity and identity and what it means to be an American and what the United States is all about, uh, that it's that if it's going to change, it's going to require a pretty dramatic transformation precisely because it is so deeply rooted. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you said the last 40 or 50 years, uh, th- this has sort of become uh, symbolic, the Second, second Amendment here. Um, prior to that, the right to bear arms, it, it didn't polarize America as it, as it, as it, as it uh, does today? There was disagreement, so I mentioned the Second Amendment was ratified in 1791, and there the focus was really on a different understanding of liberty, uh, a a, a real suspicion and skepticism of professional armies, professional militaries that were controlled by the government, Mm -hmm. the idea that, 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 um, that that needed to be well regulated by and that gave rise to different traditions of exactly what that meant in practice. And there were more, if you will, or individual rights versions of the Second Amendment that existed in the 19th century, set aside other, set next to other traditions that were far more willing to regulate the use of uh, the individual use of firearms. So there was division and disagreement throughout the 19th century on into the 20th century but not of the kind that we see today, similar, for instance, to abortion rights in the United States. Um, it, had, it had long been a site of contestation, but the, the way in which it so neatly crystallizes partisan affiliation and sits right at the center of the culture wars and really divides people in immediate and profound ways, that is a very recent phenomenon. Uh, Professor, um, in regards to modern day, uh, you've done a wonderful job explaining the historical context um, in regards to the Second Amendment uh, and uh, and how it's been perceived over the ages. Um, What will it take now uh, for the U.S. government to enable stricter gun laws. Um, you know, as, as Canadians, we watch from afar, and we at times can be very polarized on this issue as well, but when you watch America and the, the amount of, of um, uh, you know, gun-based violence that we see, uh, one would assume you have seen enough of them as a nation, uh, that it would have pushed elected officials to find a solution. What do you think it will take for Congress uh, to, to enable those stricter gun laws? That is the million-dollar question, because you're not alone in in wondering what will it take for something to change on the issue. But first and foremost, what I would emphasize is what it takes is political will. So some might say, incorrectly, that the Second Amendment itself, or something about the Constitution, prohibits meaningful regulations of firearms and their use. At least as present, that is not the case. As I mentioned previously, the current doctrine um, on this issue from the Supreme Court from District of Columbia v. Heller, while it did uphold the individual right to bear arms, did so in a very limited way. So it leaves open all of these political tools, um, policy tools that either 
the national government or the state governments can use to regulate firearms, um, limitations on who can possess a gun, limitations on where you can carry a gun, whether or not you can carry them. As Heller said, um, nothing in this ruling suggests that prohibitions on the carrying of firearms in sensitive spaces, such as schools or government buildings, are, are somehow invalid. You can still place restrictions on how guns are bought and sold, and you can certainly um, prohibit certain kinds of weapons. Uh, the ruling in District of Columbia v. Heller said nothing in this ruling um, overturns the longstanding idea uh, that the carrying of dangerous and unusual weapons is prohibited. Um, so there's all sorts of things that the United States Congress can do tomorrow if it has the political will. Now, whether it will have the political will, uh, that's that's really the question. And one of the primary impediments to legislation at the federal level um, are both the composition of the United States Congress, because bills have to get through not just the House of Representatives, but also the Senate. And the Senate represents states, not people. So it disproportionately represents rural areas that are more conservative and less inclined to these kinds of changes. But also because the Senate is currently clinging to the filibuster, as it's called, which is a longstanding procedure that the Senate has adopted that basically requires for all sorts of legislation not a mere majority to pass the bill, but 60 out of 100 senators to agree to it. So there are, there are structural and procedural impediments, but at the root of this is political will. Congress can put forth bills that will aggressively regulate all kinds of things pertaining to firearms in the United States, how they're used, what kind of weapons can be bought and sold legally. And that's, there, there are no restrictions on that by the Constitution. Just because the Constitution has the Second Amendment, just because the court upheld a certain understanding of it, does not limit any of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, in a polarized political environment, and, th- and this isn't, um, isn't just specifically the United States, one could point to Europe, one could point to Canada as well, but in a polarized political environment, I guess this conversation, this debate on, on gun laws, eventually just falls down party lines and uh, is a reminder why nothing gets done. I think that that would be another way to look at it. Absolutely. Uh, for, for a long time now, there has been polarization and gridlock in the United States federal government, uh, precisely because so many of the is- these issues break down along party lines, and it's very hard to find the common ground needed to build a bipartisan coalition to get something through Congress. So, if something's really going to change, to get to the heart of your, your very important question, it's going to have to come from the populace itself. It's going to have to be because of a shift in public opinion and a sense, an outcry from the American people that is heard loud and clear that enough is enough and something needs to change. A lot of people thought that would happen a few years ago or was beginning to happen in the wake of the Parkland shooting, which led to uh, the March for Our Lives and the March for Our Lives organization brought um, brought together by the survivors of the Parkland school shooting. And that suggested there had been a little movement on the issue, but not dramatically. It remains more or less divided along partisan lines. But um, it's probably not going to come from politicians. It would presumably have to come, uh, as has traditionally been the case in, in many countries, but certainly in the United States, 
if things are going to change and people are going to rethink what kind of rights we have and how those are going to be practically exercised in society, that's usually because of shifts in public opinion. Mm-hmm. Uh, you study you study the Second Amendment, obviously. Uh, you study the issue of of, of gun laws. Uh, what was I mean? The reaction from the United States. We sit from afar as Canadians watching this. Um, when you first heard of what happened in Texas, what was going through your mind? Initially, shock, but then profound and deep sadness, and then honestly anger and frustration because this is hardly the first time that something like this has happened and these kinds of things don't happen in other well-developed democracies around the world and it 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 is extremely frustrating to millions of us that however one interprets the second amendment however one understands the issues of gun ownership, gun rights, and the like, it would seem that these sorts of things ought to so shock the conscience that you would immediately work on doing something to try to prevent them as best you can from happening in the future. So I think that was ultimately the dominant emotion that I had. I can't believe this is happening again, again being really the operative word that, you know, all rights come with certain kinds of costs. Um, No right is considered absolute, and certain rights that have been identified, the most important being kind of sacred constitutional rights, like the right to free speech or, you know, to to worship in in the way you see fit. These are the sorts of things that long been understood that government has um, far less leeway to regulate because these rights are considered so fundamental. But... All rights come with, 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 with trade-offs. You have to think about you know, what, what kind of cost are we willing to shoulder um, for, for certain kinds of rights that people apparently hold so dear. And that's the kind of conversation that needs to take place. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.